Galatians after the service. So the New Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to 24. So Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through to 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and uh, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made Adam made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, my name's Sam. If we haven't met, it's, um, I'm one of the pastors here at Coomera Baptist. It's a privilege to get to uh, preach uh, this sermon um, this morning, so I'm just going to pray and then we'll, 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 we'll kind of lead into it. So let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, coming before your word and hoping 
um, that it would have an effect on us is futile without the help of your Holy Spirit. We're so needy of what it tells us, and yet for, us, for it to come alive inside of us is not our own work. We need your help. And so we pray now for your help. For me in preaching now and for all of us in listening, we pray that you would give us the Lord Jesus. That would be enough for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing in the series, Walking with God, looking at the kind of fundamental question that many, many Christians have, which is, like, what is the life of the Christian like? We kind of often get what it means to get saved, I understand the gospel, I understand the gospel of grace, and I become a Christian, but what, is it, what does it mean to have, in, the, in my daily experience, communion with God, fellowship, deep fellowship with God. What is that like? And we recognize, we have recognized, that on the road, one of the first stops on the road towards communion with God is to recognize that the God as He is revealed in the Bible is not some kind of abstract idea, some principle, but He reveals Himself as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, that there is one God, and only one God, Christians are monotheists, but that that one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal, sharing of the same essence. What this means is that since God is one, to know any one of the persons is in a sense to know God, to know the others, to know all three. So Jesus will say things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Right? That's the oneness of God. There is one God. And yet, we can relate to God in, 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 as we fellowship with Him in a triune shape, if you like. That, that is, we can relate to God according to the different roles that God has played in, in creation, but also our own redemption. For example, we never thank the Father, we said this last week, we don't thank the Father for dying for us. At least we ought not to. Now, we thank the Son, we thank the Father for sending the Son, we thank the Spirit for His work um, holding the Son and, 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 and helping the Son endure His time on the cross. So when, when Paul gives a word of benediction to the church in Corinth, he does so, notice, in a triune shape, and this has become the, the structure of our series um, for, these, for these three weeks. That is, Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Which is to say that the Father is, is in God's Word primarily mediated to, to us in love. We looked at that last week. That the Son is primarily mediated to us through grace. That's what we're looking at this week. And that the primary work of the Spirit is fellowship. We'll be looking at that next week, Lord willing. And Paul prays, notice, that all of those realities of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you all. That is, that you, church, Christians in Corinth, that you would know and enjoy and experience God like that. So last week we looked at the love of the Father. Let me quickly recap it. And what we saw was that since the first sin, it has been the default of the human heart to not believe that God is love. We believe He's other things. 
that he's a keeping God. He's, a, he's not a generous God. He keeps from us joy. So his commandments are not connected to his character. In fact, he gives us these commandments, and what they do are very unloving things. They steal from us our joy. They steal from us our autonomy. And, he, and he's a taking God. He keeps to himself. But what do we see? That is, in fact, not the case. That God actually is love because God is triune. That is to say that God has always and forever been a loving father because there has always been a father loving a son in eternity. Jesus says, you, are, you loved me before the creation of the world. That, is to, that means that God has never, ever not been a loving father towards his son. It's not something he became. We never need to worry that it's something that he might not be in the future. He is all the way down a loving father. And so when we see the son and Jesus comes, well, when we see his love and he's dying on the cross, behind that stream of love that's so obvious to us is a fountain of love flowing through Christ to us. And that is the father. Sometimes we can wonder, Did Jesus have to buy the love of God for us? Was he a reluctant loving father? No, he wasn't. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so when we see the son, we see the love of the father. Now we turn to our communion with God in the grace of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the father's great desire for us. To have fellowship with his son. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the father who has enjoyed deep, joyful fellowship with his son in all of eternity, it says he is the one who is calling us and saying, know my son, enjoy fellowship with my son. This is also the son's desire, that he would have fellowship with us. Revelation 3.20, Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I mean, now that, you know, think about it, like just the nature of that. Jesus finds himself standing at the outside of a church saying, Look, if you would like me to come in, I will come in. I mean, that's one thing. That the church is busy doing things inside and Jesus is on the outside saying, I I can come in. That's a sermon for another week. But but his intention is obviously very clear. He wants fellowship. I'll come and eat with you. That's friendship. That's communion. Fellowship. The, The Son desires this with us. So if Christ is primarily mediated to us then through grace, it's going to be very important for us to actually have a a kind of solid, strong, clear understanding of what grace means. Like, what does grace mean in the Bible? This was actually a point of contention in the time of the Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church understood grace more as a substance, more like a substance. So, so the sense was that Christians, we need to be holy. We know that we ought to make ourselves holy so that we'll be fit for heaven. The problem is that we're kind of lazy, you know, and we don't, we don't have the kind of energy and the enthusiasm that we need to, to, to kind of pursue God in holiness. And so what God gives us is grace. And uh, Michael Reeves explains it like this, that, that grace comes along and it's kind of like Red Bull. I don't know if you ever drank Red Bull. It's terrible stuff. I would never encourage that kind of thing um, unless... 
Well, maybe in, in emergencies, maybe. But no, they don't actually. It's a terrible drink, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't participate in it myself unless it was an emergency. And in <laughs> any case, but it, I've heard that it gives you energy. I've heard that it gives you wings. And so what it does, you have the Red Bull, and you're kind of pepped up, and you have a bit more energy, and you can go about the things that you just need to go about. And Michael Reese says, that's, that was the Roman Catholic understanding of grace. It's like, no, we need to be holy. We need to kind of make ourselves fit for heaven, but what we need first is grace to kind of propel us along. And so it enables us. It is salvation by grace, but notice it is not grace alone. It is grace plus. It is grace enabling us to make ourselves fit for heaven. Well, Protestants, the reformers disagreed. They said, no, grace is not a substance. It is not a substance that enables us to, to, to know God, it is actually the kindness of God whereby He Himself rescues us and gives to us Himself. So that grace is not actually a substance, it's not a thing, it's a person. Grace is Christ offered to us. This makes, I mean, the effect of this is huge because it affects what, that we would have clarity in in what we are offering when we offer the gospel. What are we offering to people? You know, it's not some just technique. It's not a philosophy. It's not even free salvation. Anyone with a bit of self-love wants that. Yeah, okay, I'll have free salvation. I'll take that. No, we preach Christ. He is what's on offer. All that you need is found in a person, in Christ, in who He is and what He has done. You get Him. He is the gospel. He's the greatest gift that you can find. And He's the greatest kind of everything else in the gospel is a means to that end that you would have Him, that you would see Him. That's why Paul talks about it in in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6, where he explains what conversion is like and what it took for us to be converted. And he says the problem was that we were blinded, that the God of this world had blinded our eyes from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But what did He do? Paul says that the God who, who said, let light shine into the darkness has shone to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see, we have a different side of Him. We see Him now, and what do we see? Glory. Because He is the gospel. He is what we offer to the world. Now to understand that, to understand how He, Christ Himself, is the grace to meet every single need that we have, first we need to understand what is our soul's need. What is the need of our souls? That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, like it's kind of irrelevant. If, a, if you imagine right now that a fireman kind of ran into through those doors and down the front here with a hose, you know, he's like, I'm here. You know, we would, I'm sure we would be polite and we'd be kind and we'd say, well, we're glad you're here, um, but we are confused because we feel like we've got things under control, right? We don't feel like right now there's anything that we're facing in this room that we are in any kind of need for a fireman, Lord willing. But it's a totally different thing if the context is different, hey? If we're like trapped and the place is being engulfed in flames and he turns up and says, I'm here, we're not confused. We're like, rejoicing. You meet the exact need that we have right now. So what is our need? 
For that, we're going back to where we left off last week in the Garden of Eden on the day that sin entered the world, that day. And we need to know what are the consequences of that day? What were they? What were the ramifications of that day? They are massive. Now remember this, that God was in covenant with Adam, that Adam was to be humanity's federal head. That is, he was our representative in the garden. He was in what theologians uh, often call a covenant of works. That is, that he could, earn, he could earn salvation. He could earn eternal rewards. If he did well in the garden in that time, then, then and, you know, he condemned the serpent and he kept the place uh, pure and he obeyed God, did not eat from the fruit, then he would receive eternal life on our behalf. We would be caught up in our head, in our representative. But of course, if he failed, if he listened to the serpent, if he ate of the tree that God said not to eat, then covenant curses would fall on him. And of course, as, as our representative, all of us. And so it comes to this crisis moment in the garden where the truth about God was exchanged for a lie. Eve became the founder of a new religion. You might call it the religion of self becoming her own authority, declaring her own thoughts on this tree that God had, had not permitted them to eat. Actually, I think it's good for food. It's desirable to eat and it makes us wise. Let's eat it. And then she gave it to Adam. Meredith Klein, the Old Testament scholar, put it like this. She's, he said, In her missionary zeal for her new religion, the woman presented the evil spell to her husband and made a convert of him. So God comes to them. After all of that, God comes. They try to hide, but there is no hiding from this. In fact, their hiding is just an admission of guilt, isn't it? Why do you hide? Again, Klein writes, the attempt to conceal sin has precisely the opposite result of revealing it. For the guilty pair in Eden to flee in terror from the glory spirit, that is God, in whose presence those faithful to the covenant find their ultimate bliss was an open confession of their alienation and divorce from their holy Lord. And so now with their righteousness, their innocence has been stripped away, they become aware of their own nakedness, and what do they do? They try to cover themselves. We will cover our own shame. And so they make clothes of fig leaves made by them. God interrogates them, says, what have you done? Of course, they shift the blame, still imaging the serpent in their accusations, in their lies. Adam blames Eve, but really, in a sense, blaming God because God is the one who gave him Eve. And Eve blames the serpent, well, in a sense, blaming God as well because it's God who made the serpent. But their guilt is clear. There's no avoiding it. God is not fooled. And so God pronounces the covenant curses. First, God addresses the serpent. So we're in Genesis 3.14. You can follow along. God says this, Halfway through that verse. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That is a, a position of total humiliation. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Isn't that amazing? So that they're, they're kind of newly formed alliance and friendship and cooperation between the woman and the serpent at that tree. God will sovereignly overturn. No, that will not continue. There will be enmity between you, 
and the serpent, between the woman and the serpent. But notice it's not just her, but it goes for her offspring as well, that there will be a godly line that comes from the woman. And the enmity is not just with the serpent, but also his offspring. Those who continue in the, in, the, in, the, in the ways of the serpent, hating God, hating his people. And then God says this to the serpent. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent will come to this kind of climactic battle and it, it centers on an individual. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like those ancient... Uh, battle of champions, you know, you think of like David and Goliath, there's one from each side and they come together and, and the representative from each side, if they win, all their people win, right? If this, this, this individual offspring of the woman wins, the victory goes to all of, his, all of her, her offspring, the godly line. The Satan wins, of course, their side wins, all of them. And, 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 and God says, and you, serpent, you will bruise this one's heel. You will wound him. But that does not put the end result of this battle in any doubt. Because he shall bruise your head. A mortal wound to the head. This promise is often called the Proto-Euangelion. The first gospel. The first gospel promise. It's just amazing, isn't it? You know, mixed in here, in this moment... After the first sin, the covenant curse is falling. God is cursing the serpent. And then just mixed in there is grace, a promise. Now, notice the nature of this, this promise. It's, there's not a command involved. It's not, okay, if you do well, then, I, then, then along will come someone who will bruise the serpent's head, who will deal a mortal wound to that serpent. If you do well, if, I give you, if you obey, no, this, is, this will be a, a work of God on your behalf, and his victory could become your victory. It's all grace from the start. Now, we don't have time to go through all the curses right now to Eve and then Adam, but just skip down and notice how the, the curses end with the reality of death. Verse 19 says this. God says, By the sweat of your face, talking to Adam at the time, but it includes all of us. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground for... Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, Sam, Sam Renahan, pastor, theologian, writes this. He says, Death did not come to Adam instantly, but surely. There is nothing so certain as death and nothing so uncertain as life. Disease, affliction, weakness, and ultimately collapse and death await mankind. We are all on a collision course with the grave. It's the curses. After this, God replaces their man-made fig leaves, doesn't he? He clothes them himself. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He says, this will not do. This is no good. It's not a fashion statement. It's just like, this, this, this will not work. Like, you need to learn so early on that if you're going to cover your sin, you're going to cover your shame, it will not be done by you. So this will not do. And God is the one who clothes them. How? Skins. That an innocent one will die in their place and cover them. Innocent blood of another must be shed. James Boyce writes this. He says, in the last analysis, there are really only two religions. 
There is the religion of fig leaves, the religion of works. Or there is the religion of skins, the religion of God's perfect provision through the death of Christ. Most people come to God with fig leaves. So Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they are out. They are cut off from that, that garden temple, that place, that special place where the presence of God dwelt. Now they, that God has done to them what they were actually meant to do to the serpent. But now they are the potential intruders into God's place. If they try to go back, if they try to get back to that arrangement, back where they could eat from the tree of life and they could earn God's salvation back again, well, if they try, there is a cherubim waiting. He has a sword. It's going every which way. You won't make it. This is not for them. They are unclean. They are lawbreakers. And what they have to learn, again, God is making it so clear so early on, that for entrance back into that kind of reality, they will need grace. That someone will have to come and obey as they didn't, as they failed. And someone will have to come and walk through the sword of God's judgment for them on their behalf. That's not an easy thing to learn, hey? It's, it's just such a hard thing to kind of recognize for us kind of like self-made, we can do anything kind of, you know, just give me a challenge, I'll do it. Uh, kind of people to just go, no, no, when it came, comes to God, you've got absolutely nothing. You can't bring anything. It's hard to face helplessness. We hate that feeling of helplessness. But we have to get there to understand grace. We had nothing. But we're not just undeserving, we're ill-deserving. We're heading in the other direction. But it must be hard for us to get our heads around it because the, the Bible labors this point so much. You know, like he, Ephesians 2 verse, verse 1 to 3. Listen to this description because you just wouldn't think that this was you. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the serpent, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's us. In Adam, that's us. Ephesians 4 verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. That's us. In Adam, that's us. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's all of us. In Adam, that is all of us. We have, like we have just have nothing. Nothing that inclines us to God, wants him. We are following our own passions, and it's the opposite direction. We're helpless. We need grace. Again, Sam Renahan writes, he says, to put it plainly, fallen man believes lies and rejects the truth. This is not done passively as though it just happens, though that is true. 
It is also done actively. Fallen man suppresses the truth, distorts the truth, and disbelieves the truth. Our minds, our understanding are cursed. This is the new natural for mankind. It is our nature in Adam. Now, of course, non-Christians can do external, outwardly good things, things that are morally good. But what we're talking about is when it comes to God and to fixing our situation before God, nothing. It's obviously not an accident, I don't think, that the very next story in Genesis is actually all about this. How will you approach God? How are you meant to approach God now? And we have a story, two contrasted ways of coming to God, Cain and Abel. Sons of Adam and Eve both come to offer sacrifices to God. It says that Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And so Genesis, this is Genesis 4 verse 3. So you can just look down your Bible, you'll, you'll be able to see this. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So, so, so notice, Cain comes to God, and he's going to bring an offering. It has to be, it's a sin offering. That's the only kind of offering it could be at that time. He knows we, we have to deal with our sin. Now we're going to do it. So he comes, and what does he bring? Not a blood sacrifice. Like God taught Adam and Eve when he clothed them. No, he brings what? The, the works of his own hands. See, here's my stuff. What's that? This is self-salvation. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, though, it says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Abel comes before God and lays on the altar what? A substitute. An innocent substitute. A blood sacrifice. He says, I would not, I, I could not come to God seeking reconciliation because of the, the issue of my sin and bring the works of my own hands. I'm the one that was sinning. No, I need, I need to trust in the promise that God made, that He will do it, that someone in my place will do it. An innocent one. And so He offers up a lamb. And so it says this, that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That's often the case for like a legalistic heart. The legalist who says, you know what, I've been pretty good. God, bet, God, God would accept me. He would accept me. You cannot be telling me he wouldn't accept me. I, I've been at church and I'm just a good person. Right? Just ask my co-workers, I'm a, I'm a solid worker, you know. And, and, and I'm pretty honest. And, and, and you're just coming along and you're saying, I can't bring anything to the table. I'm not good enough. I mean, the, the kind of legalistic heart gets, actually gets angry about that. You think of the prodigal son story and it's the older brother again, isn't it? Where, where the father's throwing a party for, the, for the, the, the son who was so wicked and just comes back and he gets this party. And he's like, I've done everything for you. I obeyed all the rules. I've, I've done all, I, I've, I'm, he's giving him the works of his hands and saying, don't you see the works of my hands? Why, where's my party? James Boyce again says this, when God killed animals in the Garden of Eden and then clothed Adam and Eve with their skins, God was showing that because sin means death, innocent victims must die in order that sinners might be pardoned. 
When Abel came with the offering of blood, he was believing God and was looking forward to the provision of the deliverer. When Cain brought his fruit, he was rejecting that provision. But wasn't the offering of Cain more beautiful? Someone asks. Yes, it was. And isn't God the author of all beauty? Yes, he is. But Cain left out the blood. The offering of Cain represents all the beautiful things of this world that God has given to us and which you and I would like to offer back to him. It's the same with the story of the rich young ruler. Think about that, hey, isn't it? Where he comes to Jesus, what's his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, okay, I'll play that game. What must you do? Obey all the commands. Jesus starts listing off the Ten Commandments. He says, how are you going with that? He says, I've done all of them since I was a child. Jesus, okay, let's get real. If you're, gonna, if you're going to rely on your own works and the works of the law, you don't just have to obey some of the commandments, you have to obey every single one. Right, right down, not just from your external actions, but right into your heart. So Jesus says to him, go and sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor. He just gets at his heart. He's got a greedy heart. He's relying on the works of his hands externally. Jesus says, okay, do this then. What does he do? He walks away. He's sad because he was really wealthy. And he wanted salvation in his own way. Listen to Romans 9, verse 16. Amazing. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who gives mercy. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's a gift. You didn't do it. It was the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's think about the grace of the Lord Jesus then. We're going to think about it in two ways. The grace of His person, that is who He is, and then the grace of His works, that is what He has done for us. First, the grace of His person. I, I just saw this, this interview this week, and it wasn't that fascinating, but here it is anyway. And it was, a, it was with an actor, and the actor was getting asked by the, the group of guys who was interviewing him, and they were asking him about what it was like to work with Tom Cruise, you know. And the, because, because for this group of people, they're like, we love Tom Cruise movies, and, and I'm a Mission Impossible fan, so I was interested. And, 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 and they're like, we love Tom Cruise movies, but what's he like? You know, what's he like? And the guy's like, I tell you, he's the best. You know, he's Tom Cruise. He's, 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 he's just a legend. He's like, he works hard. He gets there first. He leaves, he leaves last. You know, he, he does all of his own stunts. And he's so encouraging to me. Like, he got along beside me. And he was like, you can do this, man, in a Tom Cruise kind of way. And he's like, you, you know, you can do it. You, you can do this stunt. And you can do it. And he got, got alongside me. And it's really, really encouraging. And the guys are just frothing on it because they're like, oh, yeah, because we like see his works. Like, we see his movies. We like to know, like, what's he like as a person? Oh, he's a good person. We love to know what people are like, hey? Like when you meet someone or you hear of someone with just like unbelievable character, you go, that's awesome. Well, that's what I mean. That's what we're getting at with the grace of the person of Jesus. It's who he is. If he is the gift of grace that is given to us, who is he? Is he everything that we could need in a saviour? 
The answer is yes. Because first and foremost of who he is as the God-man, that he is God-made flesh, that united in the person of Jesus is two natures. He is both fully God and fully man. We confessed that together at the Nicene Creed, didn't we? Remember these words? I hope they just... Unbelievable words. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. That the man Jesus is truly God incarnate, God with us. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is like, this is, we've got to know, this is the miracle of all miracles in the Bible. I mean, that's saying something. In a book where there's like, there's amazing things, right? There's, the war, you know, oceans are being parted. There's bottles of oil that never run out. There's plagues. There's healings. There's walls just crumbling down when people yell out. But this miracle is, is the one that the angels would, would look at, you know, and, and just want to understand and want to know. And they never would have imagined this was going to be the thing in all the world. And they could have had 10,000 guesses. What, what is God going to do? They could never have picked this. God himself becomes a man. Theologians, um, oh, first, 1 Timothy 3.16 Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Great is that mystery. And theologians throughout the, the history, I think, have done some of their best writing when it comes to trying to kind of put words to this wonder of wonders. So Augustine, in the 300s, writes, Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the fountain be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Stephen Charnock in the 1600s. What a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be made more intimate intimately united than anything in the world, that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and inexpressible sorrow in the humanity, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator would be a weeping babe and suffering man, the incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. One more, John Owen. He, he, that is Jesus, lays his hand upon God by partaking of his nature and he lays his hand upon us by being partaker of our nature. By this means, he fills up all the distance that was made by sin between God and us. That God, as God, Jesus is an infinite supply of everything we could ever need. John Owen painted this picture. He goes, just imagine, imagine the grace of God as a well, you know, this, this well. 
And the grace of God is in that well, and the whole world is invited to just come to the well. And so the whole world does. Every single person in all of our world, they come to this well, and an angel says to, the, says to everyone, drink. Just start drinking, and don't stop drinking. Like, have as much as you can possibly tank, take. And, and, and John Owen says, and imagine that they are drinking just of one promise, one of the promises that comes to us in the grace of the Lord Jesus, then Owen writes this, he says, they would not be able to sink the grace of the promise of, of the promise one hair's breadth. There is enough for millions of worlds if there were, because it flows into it from an infinite, bottomless fountain. This is everything that we could ever need. In Christ, you just think about Christ for a moment and you think, is there anything that you would think he lacks that? You know, I would have wished that my Savior was like a bit more of this and a bit less of that. There's just nothing, is there? When you think of Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon titled The Excellency of Christ, and I'm going to quote it a bit here. He says, What is there that you can desire should be in a Savior that is not in Christ? What excellency is there wanting? What is there that is great or good? What is there that is venerable or winning? What is there that is adorable or endearing? Or what could you think of that would be encouraging, which is not to be found in the person of Christ? <laughs> I can't think of anything. And he, but that he starts to prod, your, prod you and go, well, what about this? Would you like this in a saviour? He asks questions like this. He says, would you have your saviour be great and honourable because you were not willing to be beholden to a mean person? Well, then think for yourself. Is there anyone as great or more honourable than Jesus? Would you have him be made also of low degree, that he might have experience of afflictions and trials, that he might learn by the things that he has suffered to pity those who, are, who suffer and are tempted? Would you like that from a saviour? Someone who's also been brought very, very low. Great, of course, fair enough. You have it in Christ. Would you hope that your saviour to be one who is near to God. Yes, I would, you say. I would like my Savior to be someone who is very near to God. Well, the Lord Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father of the same essence. Would you have a Savior that has, has given some great and extraordinary testimony of mercy and love to sinners by something that He has done as well as by what He has says? You know, do you, do you want in your Savior someone who's not just talk, but also, also action? Someone who doesn't just say, I love you, but actually goes about and does loving things? You've got Christ on a cross. Would you desire that a Savior should suffer more than Christ has suffered for sinners? You couldn't possibly. So then the conclusion is this. What is there wanting? Or what would you add if you could to make him more fit to be your saviour. It's nothing. Nothing, is there? Like you just couldn't think or imagine of anything that you would add that you could possibly want or possibly need. It's so refreshing in our world of, you know, in our world of just leaders that are so, you know, faulty. And you're like, I like this, but I cannot stand this. It's like Jesus is, you just can't point at anything. Our own confession says it like this, where we talk about of salvation. He says, uniting in his wonderful person, both the 
tenderest sympathies with divine perfections. He is every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. It's just wonderful. When Jesus describes his heart, Matthew 11, in the context of, of saying to people who, who maybe you may be weary and heavy laden, he says, come to me. So if you're weary and heavy laden, and, and the sense is like of trying to earn your own salvation, trying, like, this is self-salvation, this is, I will have my own righteousness, and the Pharisees were throwing on more commands and more commands, just weighing you down about, about earning the, the love and the acceptance before God. And Jesus says, come to me, come to me. Why? He, he gives a reason. And he tells, he tells you why you can come to him if you're weary of all of this. It's about his heart. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will have fine rest for your souls. That the, Lord, the heart of the Lord Jesus is, is, is not harsh. It's not abrasive. You know, he's saying, I'm, like, Dane Ortland talks about this book, Gentle and Lowly. He is the most welcoming person in the universe. The most understanding person in all of the universe. Come to him. That's why you can come to him. He is grace to you. So it just means you can come, like as you are. We're just not used to that, you know. We're used to like kind of making ourselves presentable, you know, although that's a dying thing, I think, you know. <laughs> I go around the shops and I see these kids wearing pajamas in the shops and I go, have we, for anyway, you know, which, you know, in different occasions we try to make ourselves presentable, you know, the kids go to, go to the dentist and, and we really do get in there and say, get, get, just scrub them up, you know, like, just try to make out like you've been doing a great job, you know, because it reflects on me as a parent. And so you, get, you try to, you know, present your, those teeth to the dentist, you know, like that. If you think that that's how you have to come to, to God, okay, I've just got to present myself and I've got to get myself together. Okay, now I'm, I'm ready to come. Because so, so that I can get from him, you don't know his heart. He's saying, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, so you can come to me as you are, and you will find rest for your souls. Man, you read the Gospels, and on every page you just see it's the heart of Christ in action to anyone who's weary, heavy laden, sick with sin, touching the leper, restoring the demon-possessed, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, telling the widow at the funeral of her only son not to cry, brings her son back to life, defending the prostitute before the, before the Pharisees. To the crowds, it says he, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus speaks and teaches on the kingdom of God, he says words like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They, they shall be satisfied. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes, Christ is love covered over in flesh. So that's the grace of his person. And out of the person and the grace and the wonder of his person overflows into his gracious work what he did for us. Jesus himself is the promised one of Genesis 3.15. He wounds the serpent's head. 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus is the second Adam. Paul talks about this, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. He is the second Adam. That is, he is our new representative, our new head, where his victory can bring us eternal rewards. Like Adam, he faced temptations from Satan. 
But unlike Adam, he responded with clarity and the Word of God. He condemned the serpent and his lies. Unlike Adam, he lived a perfect and righteous life. And then in obedience to the Father, he willingly, because no one takes his life, he gives it up himself. He gives up his life. What does he become? The blood substitute. The once for all, perfect, forever sacrifice for his people as he dies on the cross. He takes our punishment that we deserved on himself. He rises again from the dead so that death is not our greatest enemy anymore. He gives us his righteousness. So he clothes us, not with animal skins now, but with his own righteousness. And even right now, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, reminding the Father right now today of who you are in him. And it's not that the Father's reluctant to save and he has to convince the Father. No, it's because the Father loves to hear the intercessions of his Son and affirm them because he makes intercessions for the people that the Father loves. And so Jesus is pleading our case in heaven today. We all will still die, but death for us who are in Christ, it, has, it just has no sting. It's actually just entrance into life forever with our Saviour. That we will one day be in the new heavens and the new earth where there'll be no more sin. And we'll be with Him. And it's all grace. It's all the grace of the Lord Jesus. Michael Reeves in Delighting in the Trinity says, God makes no third party suffer to achieve atonement. The one who dies is the Lamb of God, the Son. It means that nobody but God contributes to the work of salvation. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit accomplish it all. Do you see? It's all in Him. It's all, everything. It's just grace. That's not that easy to accept. We are naturally self-saviors. You know, our world is like, you are awesome. You know, like, and then whatever you want to do, you can do it. You know, like, you just, you just believe in you. You know, like, <laughs> you're like, you wonder how that sentence is going to end. Look, if you just believe in yourself, you know, that you can literally do anything. Okay, let's do like a thought experiment right now. And you just think about what would be the highest boast that you could make in your life. And listen, make, make up lies, you know, like just thought experiment, right? Don't actually sin, but just not encouraging that ever, but it's just thought experiment. You just like make up the biggest boast you could think of. Like, uh, like let me give a like genuine. Like here, we, here we go. <laughs> I think I'm a better basketball player than Michael Jordan ever was. <laughs> I think I could take him. I think I can run faster. If you just line me up next to Usain Bolt, I would beat him. I really would. I would beat him by like three seconds. Dwayne Johnson, like if he was here, right, and we just started French pressing, I would, I would school him. I would absolutely school him. I, would, I, I can lift more than Dwayne Johnson. Right? Just try it out. I think I'm the best leader of my generation. That was awkward to say. <laughs> now, what's crazy is, I could say something else that's actually true, and it's a way higher claim than all of those. I'm a child of God. 
Jesus is my brother. I'm a friend of God. I didn't make any of it up. It's true, and it's far greater than everything I just said. It's in its own category. So why would we boast in these kinds of things? Why would we try to have self-salvation? I get all of that, and it's by grace, which means I get the greatest of claims without the arrogance and the pride, but just humility, hopefully. Brothers and sisters, are you living for the love of God or from the love of God? The first is law. The second is grace. It's the gospel. How would you know? How would you know? Do I have a legalistic heart or a grace heart? Like, am I driven, am I trying to get the love of God or am I working from the love of God? You could ask some questions. Like, maybe, what do you do when things go wrong in your life? Do you get angry at God? And you start reminding God, hey, I've been, I've been going to church you know, I've been pretty regular in my quiet times and my car just broke down. Are you kidding me? Or when you sin, do you withdraw from God? Withdraw from the Lord Jesus until you're doing better? Or do you run to Him for grace? Of course, the law is whispering to you. It's got the hiss of the serpent in it. You can't pick up the Bible. You cannot pray. You can't be going to church as you are, not as you are. Surely you don't think. But you say, no, I can come to Christ for grace because He is the grounds of my acceptance and it's not me. And He, draws, he is a Savior who draws nearer to me in my sin. When I'm sinning, He actually, His heart is inclined towards me. Like a father, you know, a, a parent who whose child is sick and ill, you go nearer. We want to deal with that. So is the Lord Jesus in my sin, in your sin. Brothers and sisters, we did not come here this morning to do everything that we've done in this service and still to do because we've had a good week of walking in holiness. We came here on the grounds that Christ is offering grace to us. We came here because we need Christ. And so we know that here, God gives us means of His grace. In the preaching of the Word, Christ is offered, which means grace is offered. In the singing of the songs, I'm reminded of the truths, and Christ is offered. In the prayers that we pray, we are communing to the Father in the name of Christ, which is banking on His grace. When we take the Lord's Supper, which we will soon, it is an offer of Christ in the gospel. That's why we think, that's why we esteem the gathering of God's people. If you think low about this, what you are saying is you think low about receiving Christ, receiving grace. How could that be? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Fellowship with Christ in His grace is, is in a sense just learning to do nothing. Just learning to stop. 
and saying over and over again, I had thought once that I would, I would be saved in my way. I had thought once, I, I will do it. And I had my schemes and I had my plans and I had my righteousness and now I realize that my best righteousness is as filthy rags. And all I've got is to give, bring to Him in this, in this grace of giving and receiving where He takes my sin and I get more grace. John Owen finally writes, Why, this is mine, says Christ. This agreement I made with my Father that I should come and take thy sins and bear them away. They were my lot. Give me thy burden. Give me all thy sins. Thou knowest not what to do with them. I know how to dispose of them well enough so that God shall be glorified and thy soul delivered. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you now for the grace of your Son. Lord Jesus, we pray to you and thank you for being our perfect merit, being our champion, to bringing us into life in you, catching us up in who you are and all that you've won for us. It is grace upon grace upon grace. Uh, Father, I just pray now that you would give us fresh eyes by your Spirit to see the grace of your Son and that we would walk in it, know it, enjoy it for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to have communion now. There's different names for this meal, isn't there? Lord's Supper. But one of them is communion. Communion. And we're talking about communion with God.